This is another episode of Building the Future with Dan Rundy. I'm here with my friend Raj Kumar, who's a co-founder of DevX, and he has a fabulous new book called The Business of Changing the World, how billionaires, tech disruptors, and social entrepreneurs are changing the global aid industry. I read the book. I bought it retail. <laughs> it's a great book, Raj. Congratulations. Thank you, Dan. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you having me here. I'm excited to have this conversation with you, somebody who's worked on these issues for so many years. Well, thanks. How did you how, how did you decide to write this book? You know, I, I kind of feel like I'm getting old. I've been realizing I've been doing this for 20 years now. We, DevX was oh started in, in when I was in grad school at the Kennedy School. Uh, you remember the story? Joe Nye said, That's leave right. the Kennedy School. That's right. So this was in the year 2000. And having spent the last 20 years looking at this sector, uh, I came to the realization that things are actually starting to shift fast, right now, right under our noses. And I thought, now is the time we, we ought to talk about what's shifting and what can we do about it so that we can build an aid industry that's fit for purpose. Not just be innocent bystanders sort of watching what happens in this moment of disruption, but actually shape it. And that's what I, I attempt to, to argue out and lay out in this book. So, so tell us about the premise of the book. What's the so? What are some of the what are some yeah. of the, the, the I can, I've got questions for you, but tell me some of the bumper stickers you want people to know about. I mean, the basic thesis is we're very used to talking about industry disruption, right? We right. think of the news media disrupted by Facebook or you know transportation by Uber and Tesla. The aid industry is an industry, first of all. It's totally an industry, and it's being disrupted. And so what does that mean? So essentially my thesis is we're moving from uh, an idea of charity and philanthropy and aid that for millennia has been structured around good intentions. It's about the giver. And we're moving now into an era where we're really thinking about the results. We're thinking about the person receiving the assistance or the support, and they're much more in the driver's seat, their needs, their perspectives. So that is a sea change in the way this industry actually operates. It's not going to happen overnight. It's not entirely there. But we're starting to move that's in that direction. That's where we're going. Yeah. And so that's – and I, I see three kind of underlying trends that make that happen. A big one is this is an industry you used to work at USAID. I yeah. know you've been at the World Bank. This is an industry where a few big development agencies dominated. Uh, USAID, World Bank, DFID, right? Yep. And even today, out of the $200 billion aid industry, $140 billion is official aid. So there's, it's still huge. But the diversity of funding sources is exploding. Billionaire philanthropy, crowdfunding of ordinary citizens, impact investing, big corporates who are aligning their missions with the sustainable development goals, social enterprise. So the, the industry is becoming competitive, open, dynamic, and that competition is starting to drive change in a way that we haven't seen before. That's one of the big trends. The other big trend is moving away from kind of a project orientation to being much more about retail aid, to, to focusing on the individuals we're trying to help. Um, and then finally, that we used to be an industry dominated by economists, and we think about you know resource, uh, resource is kind of the key. We're gonna transfer resources to people who need them. Now we're thinking much more of behavioral science, systems thinking, human-centered design. It's much more about that individual poor person as kind of a consumer. And I think that's a huge shift in the way we think and talk about development. So those are the big kind of underlying trends to this big shift from good intentions to a competition for good results. Okay, so how did you end up in the business? Talk a little bit more about how you ended up. You have a really interesting personal story. Talk about that. You used to open with this of being on a beach in India. Yeah. So how did you end up on a beach in India? Well, I was an unusual kid in that I got to know what global development was. Like I knew the term development even when I was a little kid because I had an aunt and uncle who were development scholars. And when I was a kid, my dad's from India. I got to spend time in India a lot. Uh, and they would take me on these visits. They, they took me to see Amul Dairy uh, in India. So it was I, what I think is the largest social enterprise in the world Amazing. today. I got to see it when I was 10 years old. So I had an idea for what development is. 
but I was still really ignorant about how it worked. So like most college kids, I had the passion for doing something in this field, but you don't really learn in school how the aid industry works. And so it wasn't until I was confronted with it as a real industry and started asking a lot of the stupid questions you ask when you don't know that I started to learn, well, this is an industry, this is a business, and this is how government contracting works, this is how foundations give out grants, this is how you get a job. That's kind of the story of how we started DevX. It was the, the ignorance of not really understanding how the industry worked, coupled with a desire to figure it out and make it simple. You know, A website where you can find jobs, a website where you can find contracts and grants and get news about the industry. That's, that's how we started. So your dad's from India, your mom's from? She's American, Jewish American from New Jersey. So I would have this you know, bicultural life where I'd spend you know, most of the year in the US, and I'd get to go to India for a couple of months and hang out with family and friends there. And, uh, you know, it opened my eyes to, you know, we used to see poverty and, and seeing poverty. This is in the, in the 70s yeah, and 80s yeah. in India. is really pretty, extreme. It was probably grinding. Oh, well, the time I was born, it was probably four in ten people on earth were living in extreme poverty. And in India, it was more than half the population. So <laughs> it was not an uncommon thing to see really dire straits. You know, kids, the kids I used to play soccer with, I was the only one who owned sneakers. You know, everybody played barefoot in a gravel field. That was just normal. Uh, and most kids were not getting a square meal. So I got to see all that as a kid. And you see that and you sort of think, how can we forget about that? It's still 10% of the world living under the extreme poverty line, which itself pretty arbitrary. You know, it's $1.90 a day. It's not like if you're doing $3 a day, you're doing great either, right? But 10% of the planet is living like that. And I think it just doesn't, it's not part of our conversation, right? Here we are in Washington, D.C., lots of debates about inequality, lots of debates about the future of our economy, about tariffs. Is extreme poverty on anyone's lips? Not really, and I think it should be. Talk about some of the talk about talk about your institution DevX because that you you came up with it at grad school. Yeah. How did you come up with it? And yeah. what is DevX? Well, you know, I wanted to get a job in global development. I talked about having this background, spending some time in India, and I would go around and ask people, "How do I get a job?" And they'd say, "You know, well, you kind of have to know people. Go to Washington. Go to cocktail parties." And I thought, this is crazy. There must be a website. That's a crazy that, way to go through right? life, right? And, and especially for a mission-driven sector. Like, yeah. There's got to be a, like a website I can go to that has a list of the jobs that will tell me which organizations are doing what, where I can see a list of projects. And it turned out that wasn't how things worked. So myself and some friends, we got together and said, this has got to be kind of a market failure where you have all this money trying to do good work in the world. Let's open it up and make it transparent. And so we started down a journey that now, 19 years later, we've got a website that serves over a million development professionals all over the world. It's amazing. Uh, we've got journalists and analysts all over the world, 150 full-time staff. We're publishing content about what's going on in our space. We're analyzing funding trends. We're doing investigative journalism, accountability it's journalism. It's like an oil and gas journal or a mining journal. Yes. It's more than that. It's There's that component of it. There's also jobs component. And there's a community component of it. You got it. Yeah. I mean, so many industries, they took for granted having trade journals or other kinds of trade industry journal. websites. Yeah, trade journal. And our industry never had that. So, And, we, and I think it's somehow we think about ourselves. Yeah. Don't well, you? Still, people don't want to say that they work in an aid industry, right? Because we're mission-driven. So well, most people I talk to, they say, well, I'm not, I'm not an aid industry professional. I'm a development professional who works on health or works on education. And I get that. I really do. But there's a value in thinking about us as an industry. Because it lets us figure out, well, what are we driving toward? And how efficient are we as an industry? What are we valuing? So having that lens, I think, adds some value. So DevX has evolved now into this media platform. And we're journalists and analysts. You're the, Bloom you're the Bloomberg of development. 
That's that's a, that's partly the way we like to think of ourselves. And Bloomberg has done an, um, obviously we're a lot smaller. Yeah, yeah, They've yeah. done an incredible job in the finance industry and many others now, and really driving efficiency, driving kind of a market dynamic. And we think there needs to be more of a market dynamic in global development. Let, let, some of the chapters in here are quite interesting. You talk about a number of innovations in the book. Why don't you talk about some of them? You've got you talked about the billionaire effect. Why don't you spend a few minutes and just tell me about sort of the billionaire landscape? That's yeah, out so there. big picture, you've got a little more than two thousand billionaires in the world today. That number's grown a lot. Yes, right? nine trillion dollars in assets that they hold among them. Uh, currently, just about ten percent, less than ten percent, have signed the Giving Pledge, which says that they'll donate at least half their their wealth during their life or upon their death. If you add that up, it's around half a trillion. Okay, so it's real money, but very few of those folks have actually started donating in a large wow. scale. So there is a tidal wave of billionaire philanthropy that is about to hit. Uh, if you look at someone like Mike Bloomberg, he earns about $3 billion a year. That's his income. From right? like investment income? From his business. <sighs> and so, and he's committed. He signed a giving pledge. He's, he's a big donor. Last year, he gave away about $800 million. He will get to the point, probably, where he's giving away as much as governments. Right, just to just to live up to his pledge, he's worth sixty-one billion. Is the latest figure? Mike Bloomberg's worth sixty-one billion dollars. Yeah, he is. So, so you look at you look at sort of the list of the top ten, top twenty richest people in the world. You know, they they're a level of wealth where they can have the full billionaire you know lifestyle. Yeah, and G fives. And yeah, exactly. There's no limitation on that, and yet still give away at the scale of governments. And the Gates Foundation is doing six billion a year. They're like, you know, they're likely to go to ten or twelve billion. I mean, Diffid's about ten billion dollars a year. Yeah, it's it's exactly. I mean, it's you, about the size of Diffid. Yeah, they're they're getting to these levels now, right? And this is just the ones we've heard of. I talk about Kerry Tuna and Dustin Moss. That was shocking. That was really interesting to it's me. I, I never, I never heard, I never heard of them. Yeah, and yet they're giving away more than the Rockefeller Foundation today, and they're on track to give more than the Ford Foundation, which was the biggest foundation of the last century. And they're a young couple in their it's 30s. Wild. You're going to see many more people like this um, among the 200 people who've signed the, the giving pledge, and then among the kind of 1,800 plus who haven't started signed it or even started giving. I think the pressure, the social pressure in a world of tremendous inequality, of climate change, of, of dramatic poverty, you're going to see much more money coming. And the question is, how do we shape that? How do we make sure it's transparent and it's accountable? Because a lot of it today is not transparent. And you can get away with a lot of praise for announcing a big gift. But where's the accountability if that gift doesn't work, if it's not going to things that we know work? I, I want to come back to this issue of measurement, evaluation, and accountability because it's this. I think this is a really interesting insight you've got. Talk about, though, the pure social enterprise, products with purpose, or business for good, corporates becoming social enterprise. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so we, th we talk about a lot about social enterprise, I think, in the development context nowadays. Yeah. And I just try to lay out what are some of the distinctions among them. And, and maybe the biggest thing that most people don't recognize, in my mind, is that there's a spectrum. There's not just nonprofit and for-profit anymore. What's shifted is this idea that there's a spectrum. So you can have nonprofit organizations that use market mechanisms to drive change. They might not be making a direct profit at the end of the day. They're donating it all. But they might be making profit within some of the work they do. So One Acre Fund will loan money. That's a money, great, great organization. Yeah, loan fertilizers and seeds, and now half their budget, which is about $135 million wow. a year. And they were started like 10 project. years ago yeah. or something? It's huge. They're helping you know, wild. thousands of farmers across East Africa. It's very impressive. It is. And so they're using a market mechanism. They're a nonprofit. But you might get some for-profits out there using various similar mechanisms. They're not trying to maximize their profit. You know, They're not after the biggest potential profit that they could possibly earn at all costs. They're trying to do good things in the world, but they're making some small profit as part of their model. So I talk about some of the flavors of that. And in my mind, what I call a pure social enterprise are the ones that are really, they exist for the social impact. Whereas you might take a Unilever, massive global corporation, 
they are increasingly becoming like a social enterprise. They're aligning their goals, their financial goals, with their social impact goals. And so actually that opportunity of getting the biggest companies in the world to become more like social enterprises is probably the biggest opportunity, much more than creating more of these pure social enterprises. That's probably the biggest opportunity to, to affect change at scale. Talk about the issue of development bonds. You yeah, so there's, there's only about 10 of them in the world today, but yeah. they're, they're kind of buzzworthy, right? Everybody's talking about this idea that you can have a new mechanism that incents money to go to the poorest people in the world. So there's programs or development impact bonds on yeah. maternal mortality, for example. And the basic idea, which is may, may not just exist within development bonds, kind of a broader idea is, hey, let's unlock the hands of the brilliant aid workers and, and NGOs that are out there and say, we know there's a problem with maternal mortality. You figure out how to solve it. We're not going to tell you how to solve it. You figure it out. And if you do, if you can hit certain results targets, yep. you will get money from us to cover those costs and then some. You'll get some additional money. And the benefit of that is they can then take investor dollars to back their efforts. And if they succeed, and only if they succeed, do the USAIDs of the world have to kick in the money. So if you're USAID or you're the Gates Foundation, if you can have a portfolio of development impact bonds, you can actually increase pretty dramatically the amount of effect you have in the world without putting out as much money. How, how, has AID done anything in this space yeah, yet? Yeah, they're working in the development impact bond space. They're part of several of them now. It's it's a it's a big trend. It's, it's coming. It's coming. Yeah, and the first ones took a couple of years to develop. It took, it took several years to kind of. I mean, it's the first time to kind of get this going. Exactly. I mean, I've heard about it for a while. It's out there, but it's like you said, there's only about ten of them. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if a couple of years from now there's twenty or thirty. Exactly. And they're getting productized. They're getting cheaper to put hmm. together. They're becoming the transaction costs are going down. One day there could be a secondary market in these things. We might be trading them say. in our, in our <laughs> pension funds. You know. So how about blended finance and impact investing? Because we've done some work here on that. I'm sure that, and I know you talk a little bit about it in the book too. Yeah, you know, I think the future in many ways, if you're an aid worker or development professional, is about financial engineering. <laughs> you know, a lot of this is saying, hey, we've got a fixed amount of money that's traditional aid, but where there's a lot of additional money, the trillions are in the private sector, right? Pension funds, your average investor nowadays, we don't want to put our personal investments in things that hurt the world, right? So more and more people, especially younger people, trying to align their investments with, you know, social goals, environmental goals. So. If you can find a way to unlock that money, you can have a much bigger impact. So that's the basic idea here is to say, are there investments you can make in water and sanitation, in renewable energy, in food security that return some money so you can get it, you can get a yeah. financial return, but also do some good things in the world. And it turns out there are. There are a lot of barriers to expanding impact investing, to expanding blended finance. It's still early days, but the incentives are starting to get really aligned. You know, investors want this and there are opportunities to do it. Talk about crowdfunding. I, I was early, 15, 16 years ago, I helped take global giving from sort of first gear to second yeah. gear when I was at AID. And I think you talk about it as saying maybe it was a little early for, it was a little ahead of its time, maybe is the way I think you described yeah, I mean, it in the still, book. Even though they're a little ahead of their time, they still, I think, had more than $350 million go through that platform. That's a lot it's of a, money. It's a very successful platform in a, lot, in a lot of measures, right? And I think the basic idea here is can you allow the average individual who's got 25 bucks, 100 bucks to directly engage with development outcomes? And I think the answer is yeah. And we see multiple examples. Global giving it. is one. Give directly That was the another. other one, give directly. Yeah, they're over $100 million now has flown directly to the poorest people in the world. These are people earning 50, 60 cents a day. That's their, their daily consumption. And they're getting, you know, $1,000. Or, or Kiva. Yeah, Kiva's another one. $25 increments. You can loan money, no interest. Uh, and they've reached over a billion dollars in loans have gone through Kiva. So these are now past the point of kind of pilots. 
It's yeah, exactly. It's past the point of of pilots. And, I think and crowdfunding in general is, is exploding. So we're likely to see this sector get maybe to the scale of the billionaire giving. You know, it's it's going to be huge. Let's talk about. Let's talk about the measure. Let's come back to the measurement, evaluation, and impact because mm-hmm. that's part of your thesis. Yeah. I, I actually do agree with that. I think there's been a lot of money spent. There are now sort of centers of excellence that have been set up to really. There's probably been hundreds of millions or more spent on trying to think that you know. There's been the randomized control yeah. tiles. Yeah. Like ran, you talk about randomistas. Yeah. So there's been a whole. There's almost like a whole subworld. In the I don't know if it's ten years, but certainly in the last fifteen. Yep. Right. There's the there's the folks at Harvard. There's the mm-hmm. folks at Yale. There's some other. You know. There's sort of these sure. famous. I actually liked your. You had a. You had a a summary of famous economists. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a Stefan Durkan. I kind of took that idea from him and credit him in the book and added my own take on it. But I, I love I love this idea that he that I got from him of of going through and kind of looking at each development economist and just saying in short form what are they really arguing about the world. And I think it's useful. But I do think there's some analysis paralysis that we suffer from in the development sector, and that is. We look at all these economic ideas, these big picture ideas, you know, what is the solution to poverty? And there is no one solution. A lot of this is how do we operate? What is kind of the operating model of our industry? And I think where we're moving is from an operating model that said, you know, we're going to do a big project. At the end of it, we'll issue Mm -hmm. a report. We'll have an annual report for our NGO. We're moving from all that to real-time data, to dashboards, to being able to iterate as we go, figure out what's working, what's not, pivot, move. This is standard in business. And it's becoming, it's not the standard yet in our field, but it's getting there. We're starting to see some green shoots. And I think that direction changes the way we work. So forget about the big economic theory. How do we actually operate on a day-to-day basis if you're running a development program? That is starting to really change. One of the things that we're probably going to be doing here over the next couple of years is there seems there's been hundreds of billions of dollars spent on let's call it social innovation in developing countries. Is any of it how do I put this in an appropriate way, applicable in the American context? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think probably a big area is going to be financial inclusion, right, where you see in many countries I travel to, I'm sure you've seen this, yeah. people are, are able to spend money and share money through their mobile M-Pesa. phones. Exactly, in a, in a way that's much more advanced than what we can do here in the United States. True. And I have a feeling that as those kinds of innovations advance, we will see applications in the richest countries. And it's probably going to be part of our kind of competitive market here with the financial institutions, the telecom companies, the Googles and Facebooks of the world trying to you know, fight it out over the future of, of commerce and finance online. Uh, I think there's a lot that gets experimented with in some of the lowest resource markets that will later come here. I also wonder if there are things either in, say, Appalachia or in sort of in our poorest parts of this country. Are there things that are in addition to that? I think yeah. there, I think there's going to be. I think there's. I, I think there's potentially others. I don't know exactly what they are. I agree with you well, about the at, financial um, inclusion one. Look at Zipline, right? Their their drone deliver drone yes. delivery system for blood. Yes. First market Rwanda. Second market Ghana. Third market North Carolina. The That's great. great. It's, they started in a country where you know. I love Zipline. That's so cool. Hilly country. And they're finding applications in the richest countries in the world. And, That's and, awesome. That's really interesting. I think there's going to be a lot. I think we want to look at that as something. So, so okay. So, uh, you know, I was reading the the book, and I'm okay. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the word China, and yeah. it comes. But it was sort of like, okay, come on, man. Where's China? And so tell so tell me, how does China fit into this? I think China presents an opportunity and a risk, but maybe in a different way than most people look at it. So, for me, the opportunity is. We're fighting China on so many fronts today here in the United States. This development is an area we ought to be able to cooperate. This ought to be a place where we can find some common ground. And instead, I think we've taken an adversarial approach. I think that that is likely not to work. 
I think the the risk is China continues to be non-transparent about everything that they do. Yeah. And that they kind of decide because of the conflict in a way, hey, we can do our own thing. And therefore, we can live by different rules, including, you know, spending money on projects that are not going to be sustainable, blowing up the debt burden in countries beyond a point that's sustainable. So I'd like to see an aid industry that brings China in where we can see a, we can see more clearly what are they doing? We can partner with them. We can work together. And I, that might sound utopian, but the alternative is kind of a return to the Cold War. And if you look at development results, a lot of the reasons why the aid critics are right is they're looking at the Cold War period when we were spending aid money for political purposes. I, I think there's a lot. I think there's a lot of truth to that. I think a couple of things. I think, I think the aid industry has had a golden age since 1990. Yeah. And that I completely agree with you. I think pre from 1945 until 1990, the rule set was this is being done in, under great power competition. And so, if you need to give money to Mobutu, do it. If you need mm-hmm. to give money to Marcos, do it. It's about the ports, it's about the air base, it's about the uranium mine, it's about an ally and prop up the ally as opposed to M&E, random control, what's that? I mean, right. that was sort of, it was in a lot of ESF, there are different flavors of money in mm-hmm. the U.S. system. Economic support funds was sort of walking around money for our friends. Mm-hmm. And we didn't really, weren't too interested in what the results were or any of that. I think post the fall of the Berlin Wall, we've had a golden age of development We've always done development out of enlightened self-interest, but let's say some of the other self-interests have been sort of more further in the background and before. During this golden era. Yes, yeah. yes. I think that's changing. I mm-hmm. think if you if I think about the capital increase that the the Trump administration supported at the World Bank and I helped them with. If I think about the Build Act, which was about strengthening the DFC, if it was about getting the Exim Bank fixed, if it was about Anything that you'd care about around, let's call it the one five zero account for people yep. who listen to this stuff, kind of, you know, kind of like a, a all the international American international stuff, enga- yeah. American international engagement in the world. Anything that's been sort of pro any of that, I would argue in eighty or ninety percent of the cases, China has moved them mm-hmm. in a constructive way, if I can put it that way. And I think Lindsey Graham said this in a in a small group. He said, "I don't know what winning with China looks like." And so I think it's a right. little bit your point about yep. we don't want a shooting war. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily think we've thought through what the full implications of a whole full-on Cold War are going to look like. Right. And so I think that's right. That, And I know there's been various attempts. We have a person, AID has a person full-time in Beijing to try and do this sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. There's They they circle the OECD, the DAC. Mm-hmm. They circle the DAC. Yep. They're, they're observers of the Paris Club. They've become shareholders at the institu- all the real institutions, yep. the Bretton Woods. And they opened they start up the AIB AI- I was about to say they yeah. started their own. And I think on the AIB, we basically told all 19 of the G20 said we're, we're on board, and we were obviously number one out of 20, which said no, and we waited for five years. So the Chinese said, wait a minute. I got this $2 trillion bank account, uh, so I'm going to just take my bat and ball and like go somewhere else. And so I'm going to create this AIB thing where I'm going to have voice and vote. And I'm going to, you know, whereas because I, I think we we, play, we went to the old playbook and we said, hey, just guys, hey, um, we're having a moment. Yep. So can you wait five years while we like sort this out? And the world said no. Our political dysfunction was sort of at a didn't have a price attached to it. Yeah. We now, I think, are paying a price. I I think you're so right. Think about price is important because the Cold War era, right, that 45 to 90 period you talked about where it was all about kind of national security, national self-interest, what were we after? When we supported, you know, Marcos or Mobutu, it was about votes at the UN. It was about, like, how many people are with us versus how many people are with them. 
And I think what's different in this moment is the climate is shifting yeah. so quickly. We might see mass migration at levels we have never experienced yeah. in human history, right? And if that's true, and it seems to be, then those migration numbers are going to affect politics across the Western world. So really, this little fight we might want to have with China, it's on the wrong topic because the ground is shifting beneath our feet if we don't get this right. And the countries we're talking about where you have megacities, rapid urbanization, pandemic risk, these are existential crises. This is not about you know a vote at the UN. This is not about a cold war between nuclear powers. No. This is about a world that's shifting very, very quickly. And we ought to be looking at the Chinese, all the money they're bringing to bear here, second largest donor in the world today, and say, how do we find some room to cooperate? I wanted to cover a couple of other things. I think we're in a changed world, and we've got all these middle-income countries. You you have a point of view on that here, mm-hmm. saying, okay, India, we should still, you know, you said aside from India and China, we still should be in a number of sort of let's call them lower in, in middle-income countries. Tell me, make make the case as yeah, to I why. Yeah, my views is basically three buckets of countries today, right? So you've got middle-income countries, maybe the ones you're talking about yeah. that are rising, that are on the right path. Yeah. Then you've got countries that the vast majority of the people are still poor, in Ethiopia or Rwanda, yeah. where they might not be fragile. The government is strong. Things are working well. They're in the right direction. But it's still really poor. You know, the economic conditions are still very, very low. Yeah. And then you've got this 20 or 25 countries. Broken countries conflict, that we're stuck fragility, with. Fragility. We're going to be stuck with these countries for exactly. 40 years. We're going to so, be we're gonna be in Haiti 30 years from now. Sadly, I hope we're not. But I think unless there's some change in the political leadership there, right. so we're stuck w- so with So we need a strategy that says we're in this for the long haul. Yeah. We realize this is generational change. Yeah. And we're going to work with each of these countries and every individual country based on where they are. You know, what's the context? And, and have a strategy that, that works with that context. And I think the reality, given that aid budgets, official aid budgets, are not going to wow. grow that much, they're going to get directed more and more to the conflict zone situations. I mean, that's the place where the UN and the official agencies They're all gravitating work. towards there. And so what happens in the rest of the world? You're going to see a lot more private philanthropy, a lot more corporate engagement, private investment, social enterprise. These are countries that are safer to operate in, yeah. so, so people can travel there and work yeah. there and where the markets might be a little yeah. bit more flexible. So you're likely to see this kind of division of labor, this specialization in the aid business, I think. So, okay, I, I agree with that. Tell me about, you talk, make reference to a guy who was an early investor yeah. from 9-11. So yeah. I have a p- picture in my office of the Twin Towers. Yeah. It was a, a seminal moment in my life and in yeah. my career. So talk about, who was this person? So his name is Mickey Theodoridis, a lovely guy who, you know, he was part of an IT business, and we were just starting out. We were students at Kennedy School, and we had no money, and we were going around talking to investors. The, his company, and he really as an individual said, we'll invest in you. We'll, we'll build your first version of your website. We'll build the database. Wow. And, and he was just a fantastic guy. One of these people that you meet in life that you think he's going to be a lifelong friend. Yeah. Right? And very sadly, he and his wife, who was seven months pregnant at the time, died in uh, the, one of the planes that hit the towers. That's awful. Um, and so, you know, we think about him all the time. He was, a, he was a key to where we are today as an organization. How has the business been impacted by extremism? You know, interestingly enough, if you look at the administration, you were part of this, yeah, yeah. that had maybe the most innovation and some of the biggest bets in development, it was the George W. Bush yeah. administration. And I talk about PEPFAR, yes. the MCC, there's the President's Malaria Initiative. Yes. You know, the United States played a really big leadership role financially and in kind of setting the agenda uh, on some really big issues that were not directly tied to extremism, not directly tied to kind of national security interests, but broadly tied to our role in the world. And I think that came in a way from an administration that was steeped in that moment of 9-11. And, you know, there are probably lots of things I disagree with that came out of that administration. But this is an area 
that I think the development community very broadly yeah. um, sees as a huge legacy. And so, you know, I think if you, if you think about that, that's a big one. The other area is, you know, what are we, 20 years now, right, um, since 9-11? A long get, time. Right? We're getting up to that point. And what have we done to ensure that there, are, there aren't countries out there that are going to be the next country that's a hotbed for extremism. It's not clear that we've done all that much. Right. And so I do think, and, and this is something Nancy Linsborg, Linsborg had worked a lot on at the USIP. She's like, really, she's great. Yeah, she is. And I, and I think they're, they're taking this on. And they're basically saying, look, we actually know what to do. We've got a lot of the right ideas. We have a lot of experience. We just need to do it. And so I, I do think there is a, a real connection point with the, with the 150 account, with what we do in the development business, um, to really important issues around our national security. Yeah. Good. Okay. Well, Raj, thanks a lot. This has been fun. Thank you. Congratulations on the book. We're going to have you and we're going to do a book event. Dan, you are a fantastic thought leader in the space. So getting your take on this means a lot to me. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Raj. 